This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, the podcast that celebrates the extraordinary in every immigrant story. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and I'm also the founder of Immigrantly Media for those listeners who are joining us for the first time. But before we delve into today's fascinating conversation, I have some thrilling news to share. So are you ready? Brace yourselves for the launch of our third, yes, third podcast. Now, this innovative platform is tailored for Gen Z and is set to revolutionize your podcast experience. We already have our co-hosts for the podcast and they will basically deliver insightful commentary on American pop culture. They will talk about TikTok and Instagram trends, but... Above all, they will focus on different characters, events, stories that are told in mainstream media through comedic lens. Now, if you follow us on social media, which by the way, I hope you do, you've already seen the infectious energy. But if you haven't, now is the perfect time to get acquainted. Join us in welcoming them with open arms, just as you have embraced me on Immigrantly and Invisible Hate. I really, really urge you to spread the word, share the excitement, and most importantly, extend the invitation to the Gen Z enthusiasts in your life. The podcast will launch in January. So we are hoping to make January the month of immersive, engaging podcasts. Stay tuned and let the countdown begin. And now to our today's episode. So I'm really thrilled to have our today's guest, Alex Estrada, who is a writer and does stand-up comedy. And he's also the host of the Estate Podcast on Sonoro Network. And this podcast is unique. And here's why. On the estate, Alex investigates the story of his own father 
and his father's alleged involvement in the murder of one of his business partners. Alex is also the story editor for the Disney animated comedy Hamster and Gretel. His sketchwork has been featured at the Woodstock Comedy Festival, the Boston Comedy Arts Festival, the Brooklyn Comedy Festival and Sketchfest New York City. I am so excited for you to learn more about Alex's different types of writing and work and how all his experience and story he tells informs who he is today. So let's get started. Welcome to Immigrantly Alex. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I got a good night's sleep uh, and our uh, the last episode of our podcast dropped yesterday. So I'm sort of uh, processing and kind of reeling from all that. It's been a very interesting journey. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm doing well. Talking about your podcast, we'll focus on it mostly during this conversation. I consumed all seven episodes. There are only seven episodes, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so from guilt to hearsay is a whole story. Um, I was, in fact, listening to hearsay as I was driving into the city today. Um, I have so many questions about the estate. That's what the podcast is called. Can we classify it as a true crime podcast? Um, yeah, I think it definitely has a true crime element to it. Um, we, we spent three years investigating this 50-year-old murder, uh, pulling up the police reports, going through the court transcripts, and talking to people who were involved. Uh, so it definitely has that strong true crime element to it, but it also layers in a sort of family memoir, uh, history sort of shared by my myself, my siblings, about my father. And there's a little bit of a <laughs> kind of a psychological analysis, like an inward searching kind of like personal essay sort of feel to it as well. You're absolutely right. Now, for listeners who don't know, the estate is about investigating whether your father was involved in the 1973 murder of his business partner. And let me tell you this. I do true crime podcast as well. But to be so personally linked to the story, I don't know how you did it, but you did it brilliantly. I've listened to it. And I don't know how many of our listeners have listened to the podcast, but we'll start with your relationship with your dad, because that's at the center of this story, how you viewed your father versus who he really was. Let's start there. Sure. So, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll start with a word, uh, complicated. <laughs> like like yeah, many people have complicated relationships with their parents. I was born in the 1980s. Uh, my dad was born in 1944. And this, this is sort of the way that I frame it. Uh, his father was born in 1888. Uh, in Mexico. Uh, so, you know, the way that I sort of came up is I had like a sort of an old ass dad <laughs> and he had a really old ass dad. There's like a hundred years between myself and my grandfather. And so, oh, wow. so yeah, so you, you can imagine sort of the gulf that exists between like millennial and uh, a Victorian upbringing. And that's sort of what I uh, I received. And so like my dad was a bit colder to his children. 
didn't really show a ton of affection. He wasn't like a super supportive parent, like a bit absent, I guess, is sort of the best way to describe Mm. it. And uh, a lot of our interactions growing up were sort of negative. Uh, My dad could be physically and verbally abusive. And so, uh, yeah, so it was very difficult to get close to him. And it also sort of discouraged me from, you know, sort of getting to know him. And it wasn't until after he died uh, that I sort of started looking into this case and who my dad was before he had uh, us kids and everything else. To me, he was kind of like a very sort of like distant, you know, sort of bully, I guess is the best way to kind of describe it. And it's really only after he's died and after I've had this experience of doing the podcast uh, that I've sort of come to know him. And we'll talk about how you perceive your dad now. It may be the same, but we'll delve into that. But before I do that, now you narrate this story through podcast. Why this medium? The the nature of it sort of just lent itself to kind of like an oral history. When I first learned about the case when I was a teenager, uh, it was related to me as sort of like this kind of long kind of weaving story uh, that my dad told about, um, you know, a, a politically motivated prosecutor and an incompetent police department and uh, how he and his best friend kind of got rolled up into this crazy situation. And so to some extent, I thought it w- would be, you know, sort of effective to kind of lead the audience on a, sort of a similar journey uh, where you're kind of walking through like all the steps that happened and ordered and everything else. And I, I think it would just sort of sound better as a podcast. And the other part of it, too, is that we wanted to get all of the facts and so, uh, you know, bringing on a journalist and everything else, it just sort of lent itself more to like an audio storytelling experience as opposed to something, say, like a docudrama or reenactment or whatever. Alex, you're a lawyer, right? Yes. How did your law degree help you parse out information, evidence, and help you investigate this case? It helped in that I was able to sort of apply some of my, uh, you know, my, my training. Like my, my background primarily was in civil litigation. So it's like, mm. you know, companies suing other companies, uh, slip and fall accidents, whatever you want to call it. So I I'm, I'm, was not a criminal defense attorney uh, and did not have that experience. However, having been educated in, you know, some of those fields in law school and then, you know, sort of talking to other friends who are attorneys in those fields, it sort of uh, helped me in terms of reading through and understanding the issues that came up, um, you know, especially in terms of the uh, the evidentiary statements that came in uh, came into play, why they were significant, how they impacted the case, and uh, how we sort of ended up at this crazy result. Part of the frustrating thing about this case is that at by the end of it, we're sort of left with a conspiracy. Like this, I, you know, I, are you familiar with the legal concept of a conspiracy? No. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, yeah, ba- basically what a conspiracy is, is an agreement among people to commit a crime. It's like, you know, you and I talk to each other and say like, you know, hey, we're going to rob a bank. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to you know, set things up, whatever it is. If you're prosecuted, they can point to that agreement and say, like, this is evidence that, you know, they committed this bank robbery and here's the proof. The proof is that they planned it. In this case, it involved a conspiracy to commit murder. But at the end of it, only one person was convicted. And so it's like there's an agreement, but the law can't say who this person made the agreement with, you know, what the terms were, anything else. 
uh, you end up with a conviction, one guy, uh, and no no part, no other parties. You know, so it's sort of like this wild kind of um, paradox in a way. You're right, which to me was mind-boggling because if you are basing it on conspiracy, then how can you convict only one person? Right. There should be another person who he colluded with. Right. And that's what, that was the strange thing about this case, that they were able to convict one person, but they didn't have anything beyond whatever little evidence they had, and they couldn't tie it to any other person, right? Correct. But I want to go back to the podcast itself. Did you at any point feel that you were sharing too much, or did you have any regrets because you were sharing a personal story? Yes. Before we started, I, I sat down or called, rather, each of my siblings, and I have many siblings, and uh, you know told them I was interested in doing the story and asked if they wanted to be involved, you know, got their uh, their take on it. And for the most part, everybody was excited to uh, to participate because this is a question that sort of dominated our conversations. Alex, and, are you the youngest? Uh, I am not. I am number five out of seven. Oh, okay. A lot of kids. A lot of kids. Traditional <laughs> Mexican household. A lot of kids. I talked to everybody, and, and a concern that sort of came up was another one of my older siblings uh, who opted not to participate. Their concern was sort of, you know, we were taking what is essentially a very dark, a dark chapter in our lives, a dark chapter in our father's life, and kind of putting it out there. Now, the sibling did want to know sort of like, you know, what happened and everything else, but they didn't want to kind of put it out in, in public for others to um, consume. Yeah, to consume or to see. But I think my ultimate feeling was that, uh, you know, one, it wouldn't be possible to sort of access the kind of resources that you would need to do this in kind of kind of investigation unless you partnered with like a media company or a um, uh, journalism outfit. And the thing is, when you do that, like, you know, the implicit agreement is that this is going to be this is not just for you. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so they don't they don't have those kinds of services. And and the other thing, too, is that if we I, I don't I think if we didn't team up with someone else. Uh, chances are, like, we would never have uh, had this opportunity. And so I think ultimately, the uh, for me, the balance was between, you know, sort of going on my own, keeping it private, or uh, coming out and talking about it and sharing it with others. The quickest and best way to the truth seemed to be in the latter selection. You know, as I was listening to the podcast, at least initial few episodes, I kept thinking, why are you doing this, right? And you also raised that question. And you start with, and I'm paraphrasing here, parents leave for their kids a lot of things, right? Right. They leave debt, they leave money, but your dad left you a question. And what really surprised me was that at some point you do address who he left that question for, because to me, as I was listening, I'm not sure if he left that question for all your siblings. I think you were the one who really wanted that question answered, and you tie it back to your relationship with your dad, because you saw him in a certain light. Was it in the beginning, at least, an investigation into proving that your dad had really committed this crime because it would really, in a way, vindicate how you saw your dad? Yeah. You know, this is a thing that, you know, that I've raised and others have raised is that, you know, I'm a biased party, ultimately, because, you know, I have a relationship with the subject um, and I have a... Uh, complicated relationship. A complicated relationship and, a, and a, a point of view, which, you know, I don't hide. 
you know, at the same time, I think it's kind of like, um, <sighs> yeah, when you, I, you don't have to answer this No, question. no, 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 no. Can you, can you phrase it one more time? I just want to make sure that I understand it entirely. So basically what I'm trying to ask is that when you embarked on this journey of investigating whether or not your dad was involved in this murder, it seems like given your relationship with your dad, you wanted to prove that he was involved because that would somehow vindicate how you saw him. It would probably absolve you maybe of guilt of how you viewed your dad. Was that the motive initially? Yes. Like I said, I came in with a, a very biased point of view and with an eye towards sort of like, you know, you know, setting my dad is like, you know, he's this person. There's this person in my life. This is the way I feel about him. And it's okay to, you know, to feel this way, to be happy that he's gone, uh, that I'm, I'm sort of free of him and everything else, that I, I don't need to feel any guilt about, you know, how I was as a, as a son and I could sort of be free of, of, of that legacy and, like, all the painful ties to it. So from episode one, which is guilt, to episode seven, which is called hearsay, how has that relationship with your dad evolved for you? I think by the end of it, and you know, this entire experience, I've been able to sort of integrate uh, my experience with my dad more. Uh, I've been able to kind of, like, not necessarily let go of, of everything that happened between us, uh, but to learn some measure of acceptance of our relationship. I think he was limited by uh, a lot of uh, his life experiences, like not only uh, the trial and the consequences of it, but also like his upbringing, like things that happened like long before that. Um, you know, his experience, uh, you know, being the child of, uh, of sheep shearers in, in California at a time when Mexican American people were sort of treated like uh, second class citizens and you know sort of growing up with that. So I think I've been able to sort of get some kind of measure of like inner peace with this the show with the estate. How has your family dynamic changed, evolved through this process? I think we've become closer. Um that's sort of been the really the you know kind of the arc of my uh, my siblings and I uh since my my dad passed away. Uh, I think the first year after he died, we were all kind of like, you know, very fractured. Everyone was sort of going through their own kind of like uh, personal uh, topsy-turvy, <laughs> as it were, um, uh, as a result of dad's death. Uh, but then, you know, as time go went on, we became closer. And then when we started this project, yeah, I mean, everyone was sort of excited, with the exception of the one sibling, uh, to be involved and to uh, share their experiences and to find out what was going on. And I think uh, as a result, uh, we have become closer. Like, you know, we, we have a family group chat like many people do. We talk Oh, my every gosh, day. everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, there are fun updates about like, oh, what's going on, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, so I think we've, we've all become closer and, you know, uh, a stronger family unit, um, you know, since we started this. And I think the, uh, the result of it, you know, they got a chance to sort of listen to some of the uh, episodes before they got released to everybody and... Uh, it seems like, uh, for the most part, the re response is pretty positive. They have some, you know, quibbling things about, like, you know, s some small, dumb detail, personal details and such. 
Which they don't agree with. Which they don't agree with. Well, you know, everyone's, every, it's like, you know, it's like Rashomon. Everyone remembers something a specific way or a different way or what have you. But, um, but yeah, but the family uh, is closer than ever. Is there a particular episode for listeners who haven't listened to the podcast yet that really describes who your dad was? I think it's probably the the fourth episode, which I think is, uh, I want to say it's Money Corrupts. <laughs> I don't remember the title off the top of my head exactly, but it's it's the one that sort of opens on the, um, the uh, political... Um, my my dad's involvement in California politics back in the 1980s. And it's, he was an activist. Yeah, he was. Well, he was an activist, and then uh, later on be, he became an aide to Carmen Perino, who was a California assemblyman um, who started off as a supervisor for San Joaquin County. And uh, it's a story that's uh, related by Dan Walter, who is a journalist. There was this California uh, Democratic Convention that was going on, this other candidate, Patrick Johnson, who was running against Carmen Perino in the primary, comes up to uh, to Dan and tells basically tells Dan that uh, Rosie, um, you know, my dad, uh, had just threatened him. Uh, and you know, Dan says, "What are you talking about?" You know, I, I, you know, you can listen for the actual anecdote in the episode itself. But you know, uh, to paraphrase, my dad basically walked up to him and made a gun gesture at his head and said something along the lines, if you run against my candidate, uh, you're effed, <laughs> more or less. And the, and the guy took it as a, um, a threat against his life. And, you know, I guess maybe that's kind of the best way to sort of uh, describe your dad. Describe my dad, just because he was, I think he was kind of intimidating. Like there probably was some, you know, some humor in, in that comment that was made to that guy. Um, and he did have sort of a uh, a sense of humor, uh, as all fathers do. <laughs> you know, my dad's version of a uh, dad joke is rough chuckles. That particular anecdote kind of best captured the character as I knew him. Do you see parts of your dad in you? Any anecdote that you yeah, would like to share? Yeah, I mean, like the so the thing that I you know that sort of rankled me about my dad, and I talk about it in the podcast a lot, is sort of there's a feeling that you know he was kind of like a selfish guy, like he made a lot of uh, business decisions, wasn't necessarily wise with the family. You could uh, call him ambitious too. I, I, yeah, I guess am- ambition is kind of a way of it, but it was sort of a reckless ambition. Like I think it's one thing to sort of set your life on fire in your mid twenties when you don't have kids and whatever it is. Because uh, you're you're sort of free and untethered, but it felt like there were several points in which that happened, uh, where my dad took these big swings. But he, he had kids, you know. We had debt. Uh, my mom was really the only one working. Like she's the reason we had health insurance. Mm. And so for him to do that when there were obligations and people depending on you at home, just sort of never uh, never sat right with me. Like as as long as I knew him more or less, he didn't really have a job. Uh, he just had these sort of ventures that he embarked on. And uh, the unfortunate <laughs> tie-in to me is that I'm a little bit of the same way. Uh, I don't have kids. But, you know, uh, the story that I tell a lot and sort of my origin is so after my dad and then my mother passed away about, you know, 10 years ago, um, I was working as a litigator for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. You've heard about our bus terminal. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so I was sort of doing this litigation job that was like burning me out. Uh, I had tons of student debt. And so I I, decided, I looked at it and I was like, uh, you know, I'm not really loving this. If I just, you know, grind it out for another eight years or so, maybe I'll get my loans forgiven. You know, maybe I'll make a career of this. But I really liked uh, performing. I liked writing instead. And so uh, ultimately, I uh, quit my job 
kind of like left the law and, you know, took classes at the Esper studio for acting, uh, started writing at like the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in New York, started doing sketch shows, uh, not making any money. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that for like years and years and years. Uh, yeah, and it was sort of like, you know, I, I'd really only been in, in law for like, you know, two and a half years at that point. I kind of like, you know, sort of left it aside, like walked away and did the impractical, like, the thing basically my parents had sort of tried to beat into me, like, you know, don't. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah, don't go into the arts, you know, pick up a profession, stay safe, whatever it was. I did the exact opposite, so. But don't you think you do well when you follow passion? Yeah, I think for me, I, for most of my life, uh, I did. It definitely operated from a place of kind of like fear of like not wanting to uh, to take a risk because, you know, I had grown up in an environment where we never saw the rewards of that risk taking. Right. And so, uh, you know, for me, I sort of like, you know, as a kid put it into my head like, all right, I have to have a profession. I have to have a stable, you know, stable income. Uh, if I don't make a cushy middle class life for myself, uh, everything's going to fall apart. So what changed? What changed? I, well, I think it was my parents dying. Like, I think that mm. was probably the big thing there. Mm. I think that was kind of my come to Jesus um, in terms of realizing that, okay, like, you know, life is very short. You don't really know uh, how much time you have. You don't know when your name's going to be called. Uh, so you might as well do the thing that you enjoy. Yeah, and try not to hurt other people. Right. <laughs> That's it. I, I, I need to add, I don't have kids. So <laughs> I didn't, I was, I was just dated. My wife was just my girlfriend at the time. So everything was on the table. I was on your website and oh, it's no. so funny. <laughs> on top right corner, it says, scroll down, dummy. <laughs> and it really made me laugh. And I was like, yes, I need to scroll down. There you go. Good, good. Yes. So tell me, uh, You've done theater, you've done sketch comedy, and you've been in a couple of TV shows. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I booked some small roles, like, here and there. I was in an episode of Mr. Robot, where I play, like, a, a computer technician for the evil corporation. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, I did, yeah, I did another small thing on a show called, um, I don't even remember its name. Uh, Edie Falca was in it. Gosh. Tommy. Tommy. That's the name. Yes. It was, it was CBS's <laughs> Tommy, which nobody saw. Yeah, it was an Edie Falco procedural that didn't last. You know, I've done some commercial stuff and, like, that kind of thing. Like, I've, I've always been much more of a writer. Like, acting is a lot of fun, uh, but I think it, it really, really is a grind. And, you know, writing at least, you can kind of, you know, if you have a, a laptop or, you know, paper and pen or something, you can at least sit down and, like, just do it. Like, acting, I think, is... I don't want to say for the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do some voice acting as well. So I, I should add that, too. I play a character on a um, Disney animated series that I also write for. So I saw something else which really intrigued me. It says his most successful work is the fake Fiverr profile that he uses to lure freelance web designers to his apartment building. Uh, Can you elaborate on this? uh, uh, And I have so many questions on this particular statement. If you read my website, uh, www.alex-estrada.com, yeah, a joke that I sort of weave in is that, you know, it's written from the point of view of a uh, freelance web designer who I've imprisoned, who was making my website. <laughs> you read all the paragraphs, there are little jokes and like, you know, h- hints and all that and, and that kind of thing. So it's just, you know, sort of a fun game to make the website pop, uh, as it were, for anyone who might be reading it. Uh, though, as you're pointing out, maybe 
not the best way to get hired <laughs> by <laughs> mentioning that you chain people up in basements. Not exactly. A, not the best look. Okay. Talk to me a little bit more about comedy. Are there any comedians that inspire you? I listened to like uh, you know stand up albums and that kind of thing when I was growing up. You know, every every kid had uh, like the Sandler album and everything else. I think my my favorite comedian of all time is uh, Norm Macdonald, who passed away uh, last year. And uh, Tina Fey, actually, I, I also really like too. Um, she wrote one of my favorite sketches of all time, the Census Taker sketch on SNL. Uh, I remember, I think it was my junior year of high school. I just walked around, just like quoting that to people as. Um, Christopher Walken as the guy who's getting asked by the census taker in that sketch just like for an entire year. If there's a career that I'd like to emulate, it would be something like hers. Mm. You know, she's like, you know, people know her from things, but, you know, first and foremost, she was always a writer. And Yeah, um, that's true. And that's kind of, the you know, sort of the way that I see myself. I think I'm strongest on the page. And Talking about writing, what do you think you bring to comedy writing that others don't? Oh no! Justify your existence. Uh, why know. not? I, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Like, I've tried to put this into, um, you know, on my on my website. Like, oh, what does Alex Estrada bring that you know nobody else does? And I don't, I don't know. I I want to say like, well, you know, I can't say. You know, I have a dark sense of humor, you know. Do you? Like, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I talk about chaining a guy up in my basement. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> your question. I forgot about I that. I really hope the FBI is not listening to this. Um, they may be. No, I'm, no. I'm Muslim. You never know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. A target, yeah, you know, so there, there are things like that and like, you know, sort of I bring together this kind of blend of like crazy experiences, true crime dad. Uh, left law school to do uh, comedy. Uh, I was on the uh, CBS show Tommy, which ran for one season. My line got cut. You know, so it's taking all, you know, all of that. And I'm, you know, able to kind of infuse it into, uh, you know, a sentence or a joke and just coming up with something that, um, you know, somebody in the room, um, you know, might not have said or, you know, might not have uh, formulated. I'm trying to think of an example from uh, the show that I'm writing for now. Are you writing for a show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I write for an uh, animated uh, series on Disney called uh, Hamster and Gretel. Oh, oh, right, right. Yes, that one. that show. <laughs> 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 it's very funny because I mentioned that on my webpage, but you went right for uh, the basement thing and not the... Uh... <laughs> no, we did. Actually, I thought you were writing for a new show. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm still, yeah, I still, I still write for, for Hamster and Gretel. Those directions, those zigs and zags and, and whatever, that's kind of like my personal little touch uh, that I bring. And, you know, I guess maybe it's weird for a former attorney with whose dad may have killed somebody to uh, write for a show with a talking hamster. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. Exactly. <laughs> Alex, how important is comedy in today's world? And how can comedy be used as a tool to talk about difficult issues um, so that we can make them digestible and maybe more palatable for a broader audience? I think comedy is kind of like language in a way. It's sort of the way that you uh, kind of interpret and sort of interact and experience and kind of process, um, you know, the events, uh, events in the world, events in your own life. Uh, I know that for myself, uh, being able to kind of like laugh uh, about difficult subjects uh, has made them easier for me to uh, to process. Terrible things, you know, happen. Uh, I think to everybody, right. and uh, you know, for me, like being able to use comedy to in- interpret it for myself has been helpful. Uh, it's, le- it's I guess, is a coping mechanism to say. That's not to say that it works for everybody. 
uh, or that um, anything can be joked about necessarily. Uh, but as a tool, uh, as a personal tool, I find it very handy. And I think if you have a sort of, uh, you know, a broad understanding of things, if you're, you know, reading and paying attention and everything else, um, I think that comedy can be a tool in your in your toolkit hmm. uh, that you can use. That, you know, sort of the same way that you know art or any other kind of field. Like uh, when I was a kid, for instance, uh, I used to watch a lot of uh, 2020. The issue of a Friday night news show, and like you know, I remember growing up in the 90s. Uh, it felt like every Friday night it was on a new thing that was going to kill you. So it was like, uh, you know, E. coli, uh, was it kiddie pool drains, they'll suck your intestines <laughs> out, whatever it was. And so I used to watch these things and, and, you know, be convinced that I was going to be killed. By, How old were you uh, at this the time? Probably between the ages of, of 7 to uh, 10. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Why were you allowed to watch there, that show? My dad may have killed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> there were other things going on. He wasn't, wasn't paying attention or nothing. Um, what would happen is, so I, I would see something on 2020. I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And then, like, I uh, this is pre-internet, too. I'd just try to get as much information as I could about the you know the thing that I was afraid of it was like all right E. coli like you know meat has to be cooked at 165 degrees in order to kill the thing just like wipe up don't avoid raw meat uh, order it well done <laughs> don't get it rare and so um, so yeah so you know that was sort of a um, you know a, a thing that I used now was it healthy not necessarily <laughs> but you know ab- you know having done that reading and you know being able to sort of seek out that knowledge and seek out that truth yeah. it did sort of show me that like all right my odds of you know actually being killed by E. coli are very very low. Um, you know, it was the, you know, virus is limited to this specific thing. Kitty pool drains, like if you don't sit on them and you're, you know, <laughs> you're of, of a certain um, build, like it's not a threat to you. Getting that information, uh, you know, sort of helped me understand that like, okay, my worldview maybe needs to be, you know, changed a little bit. Mm. And I think that's how, you know, maybe comedy could that's help some true. others too. Alex, I want to circle back to the podcast, knowing what you know about your dad now. And also knowing him as you were growing up, what would your dad think if he listened to your podcast today? I think he'd be upset a little bit just because my dad was a very, very private person. He, he'd get very angry if, like, you told anyone about his business. Like, if you picked up the phone and someone at, you know, was calling for your dad and you said, like, oh, my dad went to the bank or something like that, and he talked to that person later, he's like, oh, yeah, your kid said he went to the bank, it'd be it'd be trouble because he'd be like, you know, don't tell people where I'm going or whatever it is. So, yeah, so I think he'd be upset at that part. However, at the same time, um, you know, he did spend, af- after the trial, uh, he spent a considerable amount of time sort of trying to help Calvin Uh, working on Calvin's case, you know, uh, talking to private investigators for his appeals and, like, appearing at his parole board hearings and everything else. And so I think he would, I don't want to say enjoy it, but I think he would approve. In the end, if you were to define the United States in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) We're probably due for some kind of major reform. I'm not talking about overthrowing the government. And we talked about this in the podcast a bit, too, is sort of, you know, the, the American experiment was sort of founded on this 
uh, on these certain principles, these ideas, uh, innocence uh, presumed, everything else, all people being equal before the law. And in practice, we've seen that that is nowhere near <laughs> uh, to being achieved or enacted. We, we need to reconcile with that one way or another, or we need to maybe take a second look at like, all right, what are the founding principles? Like, what do we actually want uh, in this world? Like, you know, what is what is actual justice? Because um, we're not getting it. You're not getting it. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah. Where can people find the podcast? Uh, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. This was so good. And I really want our listeners to go listen to this podcast. It's incredible. I consumed all seven episodes. And thank you for sharing your personal story. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad Alex and I had this wonderful conversation. Any thoughts, any suggestions, feedback, write to me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. This episode was produced by me, written by Rainier Harris and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this podcast is Steve Martin. The theme music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Until next time, take care and be kind to yourself. <laughs>